Live from New York City, it's the Dream Shakers Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Odom, here with my co-host, George Nunez. And we'll be covering the latest news across the themes of culture, technology, venture capital, and professional development. Yes, sir. Let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer. None of our commentary or our opinions have nothing to do with you potentially buying stocks in the market. So we just wanted to put it out there. Do your own research. Now back to the podcast. Now, welcome to the seventh episode. We truly appreciate the support. We have been growing this far. We've reached a greater audience episode by episode. Would you say so, Steph? I'm in agreement, George. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. But we're going to kick things off. We got a special, special level of content for you all. And for the first time, listeners, we have literally four segments. And the first one is very important. It's Internet of Things, IOT. This is where we discuss the top headlines in the tech space. And to kick it off, we have to talk about this. Now, Steph and I have been waiting to talk about this topic for a very long time now. But we did that strategically. We know the audience has been questioning us like, oh, when you're going to talk about this? When are you going to discuss this? We would love to hear you guys' thoughts and opinions. So we just want to let you all know that we got you and we're going to dive into it. Bitcoin. Apparently, Bitcoin is helping middle class users survive through a pandemic. But we got a special take for that. Break it down to us, Steph. Yeah, Bitcoin. This is the 33 thousand dollar gorilla in the room you know mm. wait hold on hold on hold on hold on wait wait say that one more time Steph. stay that one more time all right bitcoin right bitcoin the the coin you all know and love this is the thirty three thousand dollar gorilla in the room and thirty three thousand dollars because as of not too long ago that was its most you know, recent valuation. Uh, and, and George, I really dug deep for our listeners on this topic. I searched through Investopedia. It, it, I, is that so? Yes. Is that so? Yes, yes, immensely so. The amount of sources that I went into for this episode was immense. We have Investopedia, we have NerdWallet, we have Business Insider, and we have a broad array of additional publications that I turn to to really, really get my, my arms around around this topic. Mm. And I wanted to come away with some insight that could provide some framing around, you know, what Bitcoin is, what can it be leveraged for and and how you should perceive it right and and what ways should you engage with it but at the end of the day you know as we always say on this show you feel me you you're gonna need to do your own research you gonna need to come to that decision yourself i wanted to give you guys that that framing now again not a financial advisor and neither is is george but we want to still give you that play by play on what Bitcoin is. And Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. And I know what you might be saying. Okay, great stuff. You know, it's a cryptocurrency. That's phenomenal. What does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. And the first is that its existence is heavily tied to the blockchain, which I'm going to get to in a minute. But second, it means that Bitcoin is all digital. And aside from those illustrative coins that you see in web articles and Instagram posts, Bitcoin is not something tangible. It's not something that you can that you can touch. Now, 
now that we have that frame in, we can we can dive deep. Now, everybody, I want you to stay with me. All right, stay with mm. me. Stay with me. The most important aspect of cryptocurrency is the blockchain. Now, what the blockchain is mm. is a set of decentralized computers that handle the process of verifying transactions, verifying digital transactions with cryptocurrency. After this process of verification, the details are added to a ledger, which you can think of as a public transaction record. And again, this is public, this is available, and this allows for the public sharing of the ledger. And what this what this means is that there's system-wide verification to make it very, very difficult for an individual to hack Bitcoin and issue fake digital currency. Now, the action of verifying those transactions is called mining, and it happens in blocks, and they're typically verified every 10 minutes with Bitcoin. Now, this is going to be relevant, so just keep that in mind, um, and, and let's continue. After miners complete the task, they get a combination of transaction fees and Bitcoin, which currently stands about 6.25 coins per block. And this was quartered every four years or so um, since the inception of the cryptocurrency. However, before you go ahead and run to your computer and be like, oh yeah, this is Tom. I'm about to mine me some Bitcoin. Um, you need to understand that mining is incredibly expensive and that's largely because it can no longer be done on conventional computers um, instead now it requires specialized machines and a high tolerance for very expensive electricity bills um, also the prospects of solving a cube today the the prospects of solving a cube is relevant because in order to to verify those those blocks you need to work through very intense difficult algorithmic problems and, and the process of solving those problems is, is currently like one in 17 trillion, right? So it's all very involved. And the reason why it's so difficult to do it now is because this activity was created by the founder of Bitcoin. And he did this or the group did this to ensure that the flow of Bitcoin was controlled and that there wasn't a situation where the digital token was immediately available to everyone once the processing power of individual machines um, increased. However, back to the general framing of the currency, the entire system has largely been predetermined. And what I mean by this is that there is a set number of Bitcoin um, that will ever be produced, and this amount is 21 million. There is also no way to issue more of the currency or redact currency that is already in circulation, uh, which is common amongst all modern day banking systems, but is something that Bitcoin doesn't doesn't leverage. Additionally, all transactions are anonymous and the individuals that can purchase fractional measures of Bitcoin, um, the smallest measurement um, of which is called a Satoshi and is a hundred millionths of a Bitcoin is an open and available process and you do this through exchanges. And the reason why this ability to purchase fractional portions was introduced was because the creators of Bitcoin understood that there was only going to be a set number and that as time went on that the the individual cost of a single Bitcoin would become more and more expensive. Now, 
Before I hand it back to George, there's one more aspect of cryptocurrency that I almost forgot to delve into, and that's keys, right? So keys are the ways you access the Bitcoin you've acquired. And if you lose access to your keys for whatever reason, you lose access to your coins and subsequently mm. their value. And that can be a very bitter pill to swallow. So with that, George, what are your thoughts here? What do you have to add? And, you know, how did you frame and, and approach this topic? Mm, it, it's a it's a spicy take, Steph. It's definitely a spicy take for sure. I, I mean, to preface this and, and reemphasize attention, everyone, attention. If you didn't understand or you don't get it by now from that disclaimer, let us reemphasize this again. Do your own research. Big now, facts. to get into this, Bitcoin has been viewed by many as a as a disruptor. Not only a disruptor, but a asset class that is or may be detrimental to people because people still don't know what it's truly backed by. Right. And it may be just as if not more risky than Forex. Uh, with that being said, a lot of people, right? A lot of politicians, a, a, a lot of people in the banking industry aren't really for cryptocurrency, aren't really for Bitcoin. Just recently, European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde criticized cryptocurrency and she's, she's really not a fan. Um, I do believe that at some point in the near future, and this is my opinion, I could see the government stepping in and literally regulating uh, Bitcoin because it can be detrimental for many folks. While while there there is some speculation in that there is a a market because I would like to look at Bitcoin from a dark market perspective. It's definitely a dark market for sure that services a niche set of people or or a niche pool, if you will. Those people who might be immigrants and and don't really have access to the banking industry, they struggle to bank with different. Um, banks, if you will. But at the same time, it, it creates a, a certain level of risk for them as well. But, you know, some people have utilized Bitcoin to buy gift cards for groceries, phone bills, hotels, Ubers. So they found ways to, to utilize it. Um, but to Steph's point, it's extremely risky. And 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 people that, that come from the trenches and, and, and come from impoverished or disenfranchised communities uh, have to be very cautious with this type of investment. Like like making this kind of move, you have to understand like, all right, you can be extremely great and off to the races one day and you can lose it all tomorrow. It reminds me of gambling, if you will. Right. So so you just have to be very cautious with how you look at Bitcoin. I, I, I also want to mention that Lately, there's been a lot of spur around Nigeria because they have been the second largest marketplace to use uh, Bitcoin behind the the U.S., which is which the U.S. is number one. But they've utilized Bitcoin because government officials have shut the city down. So that was a way in which they were able to get around and move around financially. There's definitely celebrities getting into this space. Little Yachty had created his own coin called Yachty Coin, um, which which he plans to, to, to use and, and put it in effect in the upcoming years. We plan to 
touch on this man at some point in the podcast, but we want to see how he develops and how he grows. But Akon is is creating his own city in Senegal, and he created his own coin called Acoin. Right, and and he plans to use that as the primary, if the only payment method to to use in order to buy groceries and get around within his city. So um, I'm interested to see how Bitcoin plays out. Um, I feel like I, I see where it could service or, or meet demands of people, but I could also see how it needs to be extremely regulated because it can do some damage to, to people's financial well-being. But before I pass it back to Steph, um, Bitcoin is definitely going to impact uh services like coinbase and paypal but but more so coinbase because and and we're going to touch on this later on in the in the ep- in the upcoming episodes as well but coinbase is actually scheduled to have an upcoming ipo stuff so so we have to see how this plays out because they're strictly focused on cryptocurrency that's the platform where people generally buy and sell cryptocurrency so i'm extremely excited to to see what's going on and i i know that this can definitely thread the needle as we move forward but I, i'll pass it back to steph those were all insightful points and i think that last that last topic that you were mentioning around the ipo of coinbase is actually a real great area to introduce this nest aspect of of bitcoin so those other cryptocurrencies that you were mentioning the yachty coin the uh, the i think you said the acon coin a coin the a coin um those again are all other uh derivatives of, of cryptocurrency and again they all tie back to a public decentralized system right which which underlies these currencies and the reason why the decentralized nature of Bitcoin is so, or rather of any cryptocurrency is so important is because it is only through this that you are able to ensure that the currency itself remains in a state where individuals can trust Mm. the value of it, right? Um, There's another company that is beginning to go public or rather that has already gone public and has a value in excess of $1 billion, and that's uh, Riot Blockchain. And what's interesting about Riot Blockchain is that they make the the rigs, as they call them, that mine cryptocurrency. In the, in the, in the case of this conversation, we're going to keep it to Bitcoin. But what's, what's interesting to note about this is due to the nature of crypto and Bitcoin, the founder, the originator of the, the concept, I don't believe thought that there would be a situation wherein today you had a organization like Riot. Because what ends up happening with a decentralized network is that the activity of verifying the currency falls on the individuals that make up this network, right? Once you get to a point where you have 51% control of the network is where you get into some issues, right? Because then there is a potential for you to act in bad faith and begin to duplicate currency. Now, in the instance of Riot, right, like this might not be in their best interest because once the 
once people lose faith in the currency, then everyone pulls away and then the value of it will fall through the floor, right? So maybe they wouldn't be a bad actor, right? But when you begin to think about how this space is going to mature and develop as it gets more and more interest from some of these conventional aspects of, of finance and the markets that we know today, the, the end effects are actually really, really interesting. But coming back to these this this other concept around um, you know how it exists as an entity and you know what threats does does Bitcoin have as it as it just exists today? Well, one of the biggest ones is, as George was mentioning, enhanced regulation, which can derail some of the proposed benefits of the system, and chief among them is anonymity. So the reason why Bitcoin has gotten a lot of flack from the leaders in the EU and, and most recently from, from Janet Yellen um, during her Senate confirmation was that there is a belief that Bitcoin is largely being used by criminals, right? And that due to its ability to stay you know, somewhat anonymous and also due to its, its ability to easily be converted into US dollars, this is something that is of, of great concern to these larger players within the banking space. And then there's also the belief that or rather, there's there's also a, a larger issue in that some people have said, you know, well, why don't you just replace conventional currency with something like crypto? That doesn't, especially with something like Bitcoin, that just wouldn't work, right? Because again, you don't have the ability to control the flow of currency as you do in a centralized system that we have in the States or that you would even have um, in places like the EU. And because of these other effects, because of the fears around crime, the currency is already being banned um, in certain countries. And this includes places like China, India, and and Denmark. So again, this is a, a very new space, it's a nascent space, even though it's been around for 10 years or so, um, it still hasn't fully grown into its own and people are still trying to figure it out. So if you have money in this space, continue to do your own research and, you know, approach it like just approach it like a risky, risky asset class. I think that's probably the best the best way to, to kind of think about it. Absolutely, Steph. And, and I want to also hear your, your take on this, too, before we jump on the next segment. Definitely. What are your thoughts on people disrupting the Bitcoin from the standpoint of hacking the system and and sort of creating some 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 way, shape or form a sense of damage? Yeah, I think the I think the interesting thing to, to kind of clue in on here is that there's no if the if the blockchain network remains decentralized, it's very difficult to hack, if not impossible to hack cryptocurrency. Stealing access to people's wallets, oh, that's very, that's that's completely possible. That's completely doable. That's, been, that's happened numerous times over already. And it is a like Bitcoin itself, when it functions properly, is is incredibly secure. But when you when you step out and you look at the other systems that level up on top of Bitcoin, um, that's where you potentially begin to see areas where a a hacker might be able to have some meaningful level of success. But but I, I think that's from my understanding of the currency at this point and, and my understanding of Bitcoin at this point, where you would probably face the most risk from like hacker threats. But but yeah, that's that's how I'm framing it, George. Absolutely. Fair point. Fair point. Okay, great. And now that we have 
cryptocurrency somewhat sorted we're gonna go ahead and dive into our next topic (laughs) which is is bodyguard and bodyguard is aiming to make your social media experience far less toxic far less toxic we got a few friends that that know about toxic behavior Uh, a few friends that that received a couple of mary jane memes um meek millie meek millie so with that i'm gonna go ahead and let you introduce this topic george how are you how are you framing this one yeah absolutely stuff that, that's a it's a great segue appreciate the intro and pass off on assist so bodyguard has been available in french for a few years now and the company has attracted fifty thousand users thus far it, it's it's been growing And essentially how the app works is after you download the app, connect the app with your favorite social networks and choose your level of moderation, there are several categories that you could choose from to curtail that app to work for for your particular network, whether if it's insults, body shaming, moral harassment, sexual harassment, racism and homophobia. And you can select whether if it's a low priority or a top priority for each category. After that, Bodyguard then and puts in the grunt work and scans, replies, comments for what you tailor that app for. And it does it from its uh, servers and makes the decision whether something is okay or off. I think that, oh, and before I dive into that, the app is actually supporting Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitch. Now, I think this is definitely a, a interesting app. It will definitely start to cause controversy as we move forward and as this app continues to scale and, and raise money. Here's why I say that, because it definitely goes against freedom of speech in that uh, people can say whatever they want, how they want. On, on whatever social media platform, but I do believe that it is good in, or or it's a positive direction moving forward in, in how we talk to each other, address each other, and, and associate with one another because the level of disrespect is uncalled for. Uh, and, and I believe that uh, th- these are the same uh, Instagram or Twitter fingers that would never say this in person. Uh, there's a lot of trolling going going on, uh, shout, and, shout and, right, and rightfully so. Shout out Drake and, and, and Rowdy Rebel with the with the computers and the, and the back-to-back. They, they definitely taught us about the Twitter fingers for sure. And shout out Meek Millie too. Shout out Meek Millie too. Thanks. But um, moving forward, I could see them partnering with influencers to promote the app. Facebook, I, I'm, I'm surprised they haven't partnered with Facebook yet. And I think that might have been done for a reason, uh, LinkedIn and and others, because I, I, I see the political banter back and forth on LinkedIn. I don't know if you, you, you've seen that stuff, but sometimes, at, sometimes. The high, at the height of the political movement or the presidential election, there was a lot of back and forth between, you know, Trump supporters and Biden supporters. So it was it was just a disaster on LinkedIn and, and many others. Um, but I'm I'm truly excited for for this uh, this app to move forward. Uh, I think that, again, um, it could definitely serve a, a piece and a value in a, in a market that's been untapped, if you will. And, and if there is a quote unquote market, then Instagram, Facebook 
and LinkedIn and and many other platforms or, or Twitter, they have took the onus upon themselves to cancel people or delete their accounts or or literally block them, right? Like we've seen Twitter, Instagram, Facebook block Trump. We we've seen people get their accounts deleted if they posted anything, but but there wasn't any app or program that came in place to to tackle this this demand. So I, I do believe that there is a need there and, and I want to see how it plays out. But I'll bring it back to you, Steph. I think here, everything that you were mentioning is pretty spot on. I think there is an immense opportunity for this service to be leveraged by those very same platforms that you were just speaking about, your Twitters, your Facebooks, your Instagrams, etc. And according to the founder himself, he really went into this space because he felt that the social media environment had just become incredibly uh, controversial, right? Like there was all of this back and forth. Um, there wasn't really healthy dialogue that was being ta- like taking place on these platforms. And he felt like this was a situation or a problem um, that he could address with technology. And what's interesting to tune in about Bodyguard's approach is that it's, it focuses solely on comments, right? So as opposed to a, a service like Facebook, which has video and, you know, has, you know, sound, all these other pictures, all these other different things um, that flow through the service, um, Bodyguard's approach is, is mainly on comments. And it uses a context-aware, AI-driven piece of software that allows it to have an accuracy rate for the removal of hateful content of of 90%, right? And this is in comparison to Facebook, which currently only achieves a 16% accuracy rating for the removal of hate speech, right? So Mm. definitely a very big difference in terms of how this software is able to effectively weed out commentary that that definitely just doesn't add to the discussion, right? Is, Is mainly targeted at you know, pulling people, pulling people down. And and what's also interesting about the bodyguard software is that, you know, while it does hit 90%, there are still human operators that then assess that latter 10% to understand, you know, what should be taken down, what should be removed, what should be allowed to stay. And individuals have questioned bodyguard for this about, you know, the trauma that human moderators face because this was a very big issue for Facebook. And all of this information comes to us today from French site CISC. But what was happening here, or or rather what the founder let the publication know was that since the content that the moderators are working through is comment-based, the risk of trauma is far less severe than what you would typically see in a situation that um, Facebook uh, moderators would would typically uh, interact with, right? So I think I think the the product itself is actually really interesting. Um, I think the market that it plays in is one that is in need of some serious support, and I think that the way that the offering itself is positioned is really interesting. The way that an individual like you know you or myself would be able to acquire a bodyguard would just be going onto the app store and downloading it, and then putting in the required information for it to interact with our various social media presences. But in the instance that an organization, right, like a Facebook or Twitter or any other large business wanted to leverage the platform, then the model kind of switches over to a software as a service 
approach and pricing is based off of the severity of hate speech on your platform right like how much work does bodyguard have to put in to make those environments far more hospitable which i think is actually you know fairly a, a fairly great way to approach the the problem but but all in all i think this is this is relatively interesting and it's it's good to see that it came from a a space that we 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 don't we, i mean originally i wouldn't have even thought that this was would be a service that would stand alone and be introduced i thought you know it would come from a facebook it would come I, I, a I did right right did. like yeah, and, and i was i would say this oh i'm, I'm sorry steph go ahead no no go go ahead what would you what would you say what would you say I want to pose a question to you because I I think it's very interesting and Mm. like I'm not going to say that I'm not I'm not going to cap and say oh I this is something that I envisioned would happen but Mm -hmm. I've always posed a question like how can this problem be fixed because I I want to ask you this stuff like do you think celebrities Mm -hmm. public figures investors who, who, who have social media accounts or influencers who have social media accounts, do you think that they are sensitive and, and lack a sense of tough skin? Or do you think they they are right in how they feel in terms of being being human, mm-hmm. be, be, being being a bit emotional and saying that, well, I, I don't like the comments under under my post, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it comes with the territory because I, I've noticed, right? I, I've noticed rappers speak on it, right? Like, I, like I've noticed Meek Mill uh, talk about it in his songs. I, I've seen Tory Lanez speak on it. I, I've seen Jay Z just the quote of lyrics. It, y'all be talking crazy under them IG pictures. Like, like I've seen people talk about how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and even even Trumpy, Trumpy gets annoyed by by the comments as well. Uh, LeBron James, right? There, there's there's many more mm-hmm. uh, who who feel like people are going overboard with the comments and and really being very disrespectful. And people feel like they have to make posts or videos just to clear the air of rumors that have been spread. So I want to hear your thoughts on that because I I, I feel like it's a it's a mixture of both. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it's yes, they can be very emotional and and it comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they have a right to feel how they feel, because like, again, I don't care what anyone says. As long as you're human, something affects you. Something gets to you psychologically, mentally and emotionally. So I I just wanted to pose that question to you. Yeah, I think I think these are. I think these are solid points that you're mentioning. I think people are still people, right? So, you know, I, I was I was looking very briefly just at one of the examples you mentioned, LeBron James, right? So under one of his posts, he had 13,000 comments, right? I don't, I don't want to wade mm-hmm. in the abyss that is 13,000 IG comments, but I can imagine all of those are not incredibly positive. And it's mm. not even it's not even a matter of the comments not being positive. It's it's in the instance that they're critical. Are they constructively critical, right? Like, are they saying Mm. like, you know, are they providing feedback that you can then later build off of? Or is it just, you know, 300 comments that says you're a bozo, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, right? Like, I don't, I don't have the ability to, 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 to really make a firm call on that. One, because I, I'm not going to trove through 13,000 comments, but two, um, 
because you know we're not we aren't yet in those positions where we have a situation when you're interacting with individuals on that on that scale and i think i think kind of like you were mentioning with jay-z who has no social media presence at all just because he believes that <laughs> the, the interactions on social media are 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 wild because, because because they troll on his wife beyonce's page right when they post pictures together right right it's just it's just another sign that yeah like in certain 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 instances these environments are not are not normal and there needs to be a a level of baseline respect that you have during in-person interactions that need to carry over into these virtual environments right like that's i think that's kind of where um bodyguard is coming from i don't think it's it's a matter of trying to penalize people from their ability to to speak freely i think it's more uh instance where bodyguard is ensuring that you carry that same energy that you have in real life (laughs) on these social media platforms fair points fair points and with that we're gonna go ahead and introduce the next segment welcome to the culture now here during welcome to the culture we're going to be covering the latest tech news across the spaces of society, media, consumer products, and consumer services. And first up, we have a very serious topic. This topic is heavy and just want to give you that update right at the forefront of this topic. But what we're going to be speaking about is equal access to capital and entrepreneurship serving as a major pillar of the next civil rights movement and this 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 topic this set of points is going to be coming to us or or was inspired by an article both myself and George read on on TechCrunch and I'm going to go ahead and give George the floor here to introduce this topic. Absolutely Steph, I appreciate the assist. This is a a heavy topic here. It's something that we've noted We've spoke on, we've addressed, and we shared our thoughts and how we can level and even the playing field. In regards to the civil rights movement, we've seen what people like MLK and X and and many others have fought for. And many of us do our best to try to carry that mission out today. But for some reason, it's still a struggle here. And and we noted that even when they spoke on economic empowerment, they were finished. And that was done by design. Now, it's clear to see that there's so much wealth that that's going on in Silicon Valley. There's so much wealth and capital on behalf of these VC investors. But how many or what is the percent of black and Latinos that access that capital? One to two percent. One to two percent out of the 98 to 99 percent that is available. And there's this there's this propaganda being put out there that these black entrepreneurs are expected to bootstrap when they don't even have wealth to bootstrap. Not to mention their white counterparts aren't even bootstrapping. So I just believe that th- there should be a, a, a question raised like it. How, how do how do we gain how do we move forward how, how do we gain that access is it should the government step in should they get involved should they regulate should they have laws in place to protect black and latino founders is is there uh 
a solution is a clear defined solution but i think that the, that solution people are, are are not trying to expose here and look 28% of black entrepreneurs reported their profits were were hurt by the lack of access to capital compared to the 10% of white entrepreneurs so there, there definitely needs to be a, a level of, of capital increase. There definitely needs to be a, a level of diversity to be heightened in these spaces because people are, or, or, or black people are more than capable of doing the work. It's just, we, we know what the problem is. Again, but people don't want to access or even talk about that that conversation. So before I, I, I go in more, I, I would love to, to hear Steph's point on this. Yeah, George, this is definitely a moment where you, you know, you just, you just put your hands up and just try to figure out like what's happening, like what's, what is happening in these spaces, because there are a series of instances where you have individuals that seemingly have, that have all of the things down on paper and even still they're not able to raise funds, right? So if, if you're the individual that, you know, went to Harvard, right, um, was able to work at a startup, right, um, was able to break off from the startup, create your own team, bring in the professionals that you need, and then begin to line up customers, you've identified a problem in the market, you're able to serve these individuals, you're able to uh, put put systems in place such that you have an offering and it's working and it's out there and it's running. And then you try to go to investors and you're not able to draw any sort of traction. It's, it's just like, like, like what's, what's happening here. And you you have to go, go back and forth with this outlook of, well, Hey, you know, it's not a situation where they're, they're trying to ice me out. I just haven't found the right VC, right? And you go through the process of speaking with more than 100 different partners before you're able to get that first that first check. It's, it's, it's something that just raises eyebrows. Like, how is this going on? And that story that I made is not something that's just from thin air. That was the real life experiences of Kevin Henderson, the CEO of of Indenzio, right? And this is a data and analytics software automation company uh, focused on insurance-based offerings. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because what oftentimes gets spun is that, oh, you know, there just isn't enough black founders that have the talent and the skill sets that we're looking for, right? Like this, this just isn't this has this just isn't the case. And even when you flip the script and you look not only from the vantage point of founders, but you look at it from the vantage point of investors, the same story rings through, uh, or rather the same story rings true. Here, in this instance, we have another individual, and this is Elliot Robinson, and he's a black VC investor um, who, who had a more uh, public-facing role after the events of, of last year's protests, but he re- recounted the experience that he had after receiving his MBA from Columbia. Right. So, again, Mm. this is another individual that had an Ivy League experience. Right. Went ahead, went to the Ivy, got the MBA, which is what they say you need to do. You need to check that box. Right. So he went ahead. He checked the box. He thought everything was going to be gravy. He was like, all right, cool. I got my MBA now. I'm going to go back to the Valley. No. But that was just all a facade. All a facade. Ended up having to go to Canada for four years. Go to Canada for four years, figure it out and then come back 
to the Valley to get his first real investor role, right? So it's it's crazy. It's just crazy how this is paired up in these spaces and what individuals begin to try to frame it as, right? There's another stat that's even more sobering, right? So based on a Harvard study that looked at capital invested in black founders from the period of 1990 to 2016, they noted that just 0.4, not 4%, 0.4% of the entrepreneurs who received funding were black, right? Like that's, it's, it's, it's just, it's crazy to think about like what's oh my gosh happening in these spaces. And, and, and there's no denying the structural aspects that are tied to this because again, when you think about you, when you think about the circles that you need to be in to be able to rub shoulders with some of these individuals just to have a conversation, forget forget being able to say, will you invest in my company? Will you have a conversation with me, right? Mm. You have to come from the Harvard. You have to come from the Stanford. You need to have associations with an institution like Columbia. So if these folks, if these folks... And, who, and, 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 and Yale, MIT. Facts. Facts, right? facts. To, to, to name a few more, but it's like, yeah, basically even top 10. Right. But definitely the, the main ones mm-hmm. are Stanford and Harvard. Yes, Dude. right. So that that's that brings me into my next point. If, if you don't have the check from those institutions, right? Or rather, if you have the check from those institutions and you still can't get funding, what happens to what happens to the to the black founder that went to Darden, which is still a great school, mm. right? It's still a great school. Is 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 lauded as a top fifteen MBA school in the nation, right? Does that person just get no play at all, right? Like, is are they incompetent? It's just it's crazy to think like what happens. And God forbid you didn't get an MBA at all, right? Like then it's just kind of like then it's just kind of like over for you, I suppose. Uh, from the framing, <laughs> from- uh, uh, unless unless you have a mentor unless or you, you have, have someone that's willing to back you that right. has a prominent name in this space right. and is willing to to provide you the necessary resources and capital to be successful, potentially, right? But that that kind of brings us even to a, a further point still, which is what we've, which is is another thing that's common. Uh, Lee spoke on in these spaces of like uh, black black entrepreneurship is that. Yes, you can have a mentor, you can have an individual that that'll introduce you to these folks. But the the transition point of getting it to uh, getting it away from a relationship that's just based on mentorship to a relationship that sees an individual put capital behind your name, behind your brand, behind your business is still a very difficult one, right? Um so I I think it's just it's just crazy, right? Like these again are just horrible statistics. Um but they get they get back to the reality that we that we see here in this country around the lack of the existence of a true meritocratic system, right? Wherein you are really just based off of grit and the work that you put in. Like that's something that we still have yet to to fully achieve. But um, I wanted to go ahead and definitely give it back to you, brother. Yeah, for sure. I, I and by no means are we complaining at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're just stating the facts here. Right. The, the the facts is that there's just so many hula hoops to go through and climb up. Mm-hmm. And we're still struggling to, to get into certain spaces. We're still struggling to, to get into certain opportunities. And and God forbid that but, but we're not even talking about the people that don't even know about this space. No, no. That 
that that come from the trenches and are just trying to make it out of that mm-hmm. all of that trauma all of that uh anguish all of that frustration like all, all of that that comes with that bubble mm-hmm. that that that's exactly why we created dream shakers to inform the people of, of what they should be aware about what they should be conscientious of mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's like i'm i'm waiting to see what change looks like right because we we have we have yet to see the the progress that we need to see and and as you mentioned uh, the stats are just abysmal man right like they, they don't even make true sense i mean it makes sense in, in the front that we understand what's happening and why it's happening but mm-hmm. yeah we we just need to see we just need to see change Definitely need to see change. Definitely need to see change. And there, there has been, you know, announcements from firms after, you know, last year's protests. And there are pushes that are being made. But, you know, when you see numbers like these, when you see how long, you know, dudes have been trying to break into these spaces, you just you just hope that that these firms that these firms do better and that these efforts continue to be long lasting and that they don't fade away into the background once enough time has passed, the world unfreezes, and normal routines are, are once again resumed. Um, but by only time will tell. Uh, still, we'll be here to report the details all the way through. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass it back to you, George. For sure. And with that being said, moving along here, we're going to switch it up. We're going to talk about beauty. Black beauty. We're going to talk about black beauty. Before we were talking about black ambition. Uh-huh. But now we're going to talk about black beauty. He liked that that so, sound effect, y'all. He liked that sound effect. Go, go ahead. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. But now we're going to talk about 13 Loom, which is a black-owned platform to discuss and talk about, or not even talk about, but more so bring onto the platform black beauty brands and it could all be on one platform so that you don't have to swift through and churn through different tabs on your laptop or on your phone it'll just be on one platform and they just recently got backing from the famous p diddy himself now steph what are your thoughts on this take it away here yeah, 13 Loon is actually really interesting. It was created by Patrick Herning and Niakio Greco. And apologies if I uh, if I messed up on your name right there. My, my fault for that. Yeah, we apologize. We apologize. We, we're just trying to figure this out. Thank you. Right. Uh, but both are industry veterans in the cosmetic space. And as you mentioned, they've recently just completed a $1 million seed race. Now, the startup aims to be a one-stop shop for cosmetic and beauty products that cater to the needs of black consumers. But here is the very important point. They're doing this, they're doing this through a focus on clean beauty practices, right? Mm. Now, this means that the products featured on 13 Loon are made without ingredients shown or suspected to harm human health. So not only will you look good, you'll feel good too. And you can rest Mm. easy mm -hmm, knowing that you're not damaging your hair, your scalp, or your skin 
over the long run, which is very important in black beauty. You know, sometimes they tell, you know, sometimes they tell the, the, the females out there, you know, do the perm. And then mm, they do the perm. Don't stray, don't stray in that. We, 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 we appreciate them uh-huh. curls out here. Uh-huh. And, and hopefully post-COVID, y'all can tune into that curl fest that's going on. They're mm-hmm. they, they going to have that little event and all that. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we truly cherish and appreciate the the... Baby hairs for sure. The baby hairs is important. The baby hairs is important. Absolutely, absolutely. So the company has decided to start with 13 brands, hence the name. And based on information provided by outlets like Cosmopolitan, uh, the initial lineup includes brands like Hyperskin, Bomba Curls, there goes those curls we were talking about again, and Gilded Body. Uh, 13 Moon also plans to add more brands in the future and will feature companies that don't have black founders but do provide products that service minority communities as the company believes allyship will be crucial to ensuring the lessons learned from last year's series of protests, which I just spoke about, continue to inform and guide practices well into the future. Again, it's about making sure this moment, this this point in time extends far beyond just a one year interval, right? Uh, so, so George, how do you have you have anything else you wanted to uh, to add in on on Thirteen Moon and their practices here, brother? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's an amazing platform, right? Like that's something that we truly haven't really seen before, especially uh, black beauty and 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 black businesses, right? Like we we've seen people change the game in terms of like shea butter, shea moisture, uh, but but that'll that'll give them the platform to to bring this along to a, a black beauty platform. I, and I believe they got acquired, right? If, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Shea Moisture definitely got acquired by Unilever for, for a, a, a absolutely. Yep, C, big CPG bag. brand. Yep, for mm-hmm. a big bag. Um, and hopefully they'll, they'll be working on something different. Uh, and, and maybe they won't sell off this time. But yeah, I, I think that like, creating a platform like this definitely gives a... Uh, opportunity for for black beauty entrepreneurs to, to give them the exposure that they need, give them the the different levels of support that they need. Um, I'm just curious to see how they raise money moving forward. Uh, I'm curious to see what their marketing aspect is. Right, like are, are they are they going to to launch a big campaign next month, Steph? Because next month is Black History Month, so. Mm. Um, that that's going to be interesting to see how they can scale and, and, and go forward from there. I'm also uh, interested in seeing how they, they, they raise that capital. And another thing, too, which is which is important to note here, I want to see how COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement plays a, an effect into this sort of startup, because a lot of startups have birthed from COVID and in the BLM movement. A lot of a lot of um, investors have started to shift and and give a caring heart because of the situations that have occurred. So I'm curious to see how this shakes out moving forward. And uh, I'm I'm very excited for the for this platform. Um, it it definitely speaks to. And, and not only speaks to, but honors the heritage and, and history of black and brown culture and communities. And most importantly, amplifies the voices behind each brand, spotlighting them with 
uh, prominent. So I want to pass it back to you, Steph, and, and how you you feel about this and, and we'll we'll go forward. Yeah, I think the situation here is is interesting. Like you mentioned with uh, Shea Moisture, I think what's interesting around 13 Loon is that this could really be a platform where this is your go-to space for these brands and that these brands and 13 Loon grow concurrently such that as the needs for larger supply, a, a broader set of consumers, uh, et cetera, continues to happen on the end of the individuals that are providing the product, the capacity to uh, take on more customers for the platform and really serve as the go-to destination, sort of like a, a Black Sephora, if you will, um, also continues to emerge on the end of 13 Loon. So I think the company is positioned in a good space. Both founders seem incredibly committed uh, to the vision and the brand of the offering. However, looking just at the core product of what 13 Loon is, I think it is something that could have very real meaningful impact for the communities that purchase these products. And with that, we're going to jump into the next segment. VC Money Moves is where we are discussing the activities that are occurring in the VC space. And to kick it off, we have to talk about a caregiver, a notable figure, a, a public figure, a billionaire. Bill Gates led a fundraise and raises another billion dollars to invest in clean tech. And this fund is called Breakthrough Energy Ventures. It's not your typical venture fund. It's very dynamic, very specific. But I'll pass it off to Steph to break it down and let you all digest. Yeah, so so as you were mentioning, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, or BV, is not typical, right? And it is in an organization, or rather it's a part of a larger organization that's simply just called uh, Breakthrough Energy, which was established in 2015 with the aim to get the world to net zero emissions by 2050. And that date is incredibly important. And we're gonna we're gonna delve into that in a, in a little bit. Um, but net zero just simply means there are no new emissions that are added to the atmosphere. Uh, now, Breakthrough Energy Ventures is the investment vehicle that will help Breakthrough Energy achieve its aims. And its investment base is actually pretty affluent. Um, it includes some of the most wealthy business leaders in the world, if not the richest. Uh, individuals like Jeff Bezos, uh, Michael Bloomberg, and Richard Branson, uh, who you don't know is the founder of, of Virgin. Uh, the fund has a unique approach to investing, uh, and it gets away from the typical four to seven year timeline that is associated or more commonly associated with conventional VC firms in favor of a 20-year timeline that gives the organizations it invests in the required time to scale and grapple with the regulatory hurdles, which oftentimes impede progress in the climate and energy space. Again, the group's goal here is to critically assess the ways we live, eat, work, and travel so that humanity can avoid the most devastating impacts of climate change. Thus far, the firm has had one successful exit in the form of Quantum Scope, which makes next-generation lithium-ion batteries, and was able to IPO largely due to a SPOC. The firm understands that this was an anomaly, however, and believes that the bulk of its investments will align with its 20-year timeline. 
Now, before I break into the focus on 2050 and some of the implications of what happens if we don't hit that date, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pass it back to to George to hear his take. Yeah, absolutely. Thank thank you for the the pass off stuff. So their first round, because this is their their second round in which they're raising capital, their first round of investments literally focused on 45 startups uh, that that tackled some of these problems. And it was investing in complex technology that covered energy storage, lithium mining, electric aviation, synthetic palm oil, zero carbon steel, hydropower turbines, and even nuclear fusion. And I, I think that Bill Gates is onto something here. They've understood the importance of the environment and, and trying to figure out how can we tackle some of these environmental issues. Uh, he also noted that he wanted to make it different because he wanted to learn from the mistake of VC investors. So like within a VC space, there were there was a time where they invested or they tried to invest in clean tech. But when they tried to do that, they were they were trying to hit the same targets or the same metrics that they would for for regular startups that were in other industries, which was expecting returns from a clean tech investment in less than five years. But that wasn't realistic. And Bill Gates and and his, his venture fund noted that. Right. Which is why they, they expanded to 20 years to steps point. So I I definitely think that there's something here. Um, I, I can see them gaining the the returns or tractions that they need. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to see if Elon Musk is secretly supporting or, or he plans to get on board as well, because they, they're all tackling the same mission in terms of creating a better environment while they all may be tackling different variations of it it's still the same goal and so um i I think with elon musk tackling the importance of electric vehicles i want to see how he gets on board and and backs bill gates if there if there's a possibility there but i'm i'm really excited for this this venture for for gates and and for for us who want to partake in it yeah no i think it's it's definitely a situation where here you have capital being put to use for a cause that really is going to have um, very real implications for everyone that, that lives on this planet. Um, now, why the focus on 2050? Uh, well, according to the United Nations, if the world is able to reach net zero status by 2050, uh, we can ensure that global temperatures don't exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius above that of pre-industrial levels. And that we can then avoid most of the negative effects that result as a consequence of this rise. It's apparent then that we should take action and that BEV is just the first of many steps we'll all need to take as a species to avoid bringing on conditions that ensure our own extinction. Absolutely. And and just to chime in, Steph, uh, while their goal for this round as they raise a billion dollars, their goal is to invest into 40 or 50 startups. 
But there's a possibility here, Steph, that they may not find enough investable startups because they may not tackle the things that Breakthrough Ventures focus on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Gates is like, okay, well, if 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 that doesn't work, then there's a possibility BEV will launch new companies itself, mm-hmm. relying on its own technical expertise. Um, and like I mentioned before, uh, Gates is, is someone who's highly intelligent, uh, highly focused, and you know he he he's very methodical in how he approaches certain aspects. Uh, that he wants to tackle. I mean, he has a research research center, so he's always in that research method or mode to to tackle a particular problem or, or even to to give information to the world. So that being said, translating this over to BEV, even if they don't have the the bandwidth to um, or, or or they can't find traction into the a uh, large amount of startups that they're looking for, which is like that 40 to 50 range. I can see him coming out and saying, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll do something of our own to tackle the problems that, that we plan to, to focus on. So these are these are valid points. It's going to definitely be a situation where there might not be a company that's currently engaged in the space that BEV wants there to be uh, meaningful progress in. And because of this, they're going to go ahead and figure out a way to spin up their own company and fill in that gap in the market. So again, it's, 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 it's admirable work. It's admirable work. Um, this is something that needs both private and uh, public in the form of government interest. And we're going to see how things continue to play out in this space. Now, with that, we're going to go ahead and switch over to the next topic. Rivian, the electric startup making SUVs that any Range Rover fan would drool over, raises 2.6... <laughs> Five billion dollars. Uh, these, this is a Ooh-wee. pretty big stat here, George. And we're gonna go ahead and let you open us up on this topic. So, how are you looking? Yeah, I'm. I'm not surprised this stuff. I mean, you you gotta understand who you're dealing with here. Like, you, like you really have to understand the background of of some of these people that that try to create certain things for the world. R.J. Scringe, apologies if we mispronounce your last name, uh, is the founder and CEO of Rivian. He was an engineer and got his PhD from MIT. That boy's smart. For real. Uh, And he... Before even starting this, the 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 Rivian startup, he tried to slash his carbon footprint at MIT by getting around by foot or by bike and taking cold showers and doing laundry by hand. This guy's extreme. Very. But that's how much he cared about this concept. That's how much he cared about this topic. And I'm I'm not surprised that he raised a a two point sixty five billion dollar uh, raise. Um, I can see him being or, or Rivian itself. I could see Rivian posing a threat to to Tesla um, moving forward because there there have been people that have been backing this right. Like they they see the potential for Rivian. I mean, hey, we we spoke about it on our previous pods. 
Jeff Bezos and Amazon got on this quick. They knew there was a potential for demand here. I mean, they're, they're definitely in the shipping industry, so <laughs> why not, right? Um, and they announced a $700 million raise or funding round led by Amazon. And so I, I could definitely see them being the game changer in how things are delivered. I'm also excited to see what potential partnerships store up from this, right, Steph? Like, will UPS get behind this? Will USPS get behind this? Will DHL, FedEx, the shipping carriers, will they get behind this? But yeah, Rivian is set to put out their electric trucks by Q2 in, in June of 2021. And they're planning to to make around 20,000 pickup trucks in 2021 and 40,000 in 2022. Uh, But I would love to hear your take on this stuff. I mean, um, there there were analysts at J.P. Morgan who who, who test drove the the Mac-E, right? And and they believe that – (laughs) and let me backtrack before this, right? So actually, um, Ford – has a undisclosed stake, minority stake, minority owned stake in Rivian. And they invested in the company because they knew the the potential of where it it would lead to moving forward. And because of that, their Ford stock has shot up 23% when this announcement came about. But the reason why I, I talked about the Mac E is because Ford also has electric vehicle ambitions of its own. And they're on the verge of launching their electric vehicle, which is the Mach-E. And analysts at JP Morgan test drove and they said that Ford is definitely going to be a credible contender in the battery electric vehicle space. But I want to hand it back to you, Steph, to, to hear your thoughts, because I know you're that car guy. Uh, so I, I want to pass it back to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rivian is interesting. Rivian is incredibly interesting. Rivian came on the scene in 2018 during a reveal at the LA Auto Show. And prior to that, no one really knew what the company was. They didn't know it existed, even though, as you were mentioning earlier, the company was founded all the way back in 2009, which was surely... Mm-hmm after or or shortly rather after the financial crisis however the the company itself has a really interesting set of product right now the core offerings are limited to just two vehicles in the form of the r1t electric pickup and the r1s suv and they haven't yet shipped either product like you were mentioning the first set Mm. of units are set to go out this summer and it's going to be that r1t but what's interesting to note here is that that sits at thirty thousand pre-orders uh which is 120th of tesla's current six hundred thousand plus cybertruck pre-order estimate however what's interesting to note here is that rivian has been showing extensive testing of its vehicle 
off-road. Um, it recently completed a journey, I believe, from South America all the way back up to the U.S. using a, a charging network that Rivian had built during the process. Um, and it's received a lot of strong uh, feedback from individuals that have been involved in the development process uh, thus far in regards to it being a very capable vehicle, both on-road and off-road. And in terms of the in-vehicle features, there is um, some things that kind of separate it from the set of options that you would see in a typical Tesla product, right? The the way that the cabin is set up, the uh, features and amenities that you will find within the vehicle, and also is the, the way that the, the vehicle overall is just structured for outdoor-based activities. It's, it's definitely a unique approach for an electric vehicle, especially considering the fact that individuals oftentimes have range anxiety around the purchase of electric cars. So the idea that you can kind of just take this thing, go into the wild, go into the go into the, the trail and just drive and, and go out there and explore kind of comes back to this idea that, you know, electric vehicles are actually going to be the next major frontier. And this is where we're going to see the transformation of the car as we know it today. And going back to your point around Ford's interest in investing in the company, that was true. Ford does have a small minority stake in Rivian. What I think is 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 even more interesting, or not even more interesting, but what I think is, is also interesting to note is that with this latest valuation, the company is, or rather with this latest round, the company is valued at $27.6 billion, which eclipses Ford's current valuation, right? Like that's... <laughs> That's larger than the total value of Ford. It's crazy. It's crazy what's happening in these in these spaces, especially considering the fact that the company is so young. It's still very much in its early stages. It only has one factory. It's a very good factory. It's an expanded factory from what it originally acquired from uh, Mitsubishi when it made that purchase. And it is a very good use of some of the capital that it's raised. I believe they said all in the revisions to the space uh, numbered or it was close to that of $1 billion. However, again, when you when you pair it up to something like a Tesla, you begin to see, okay, there's still room to grow here as Tesla is completing the uh, construction of two more gigafactories this year, bringing its total count up to five, right? So this is a space that is interesting. Rivian is an interesting company. They have been able to successfully pull away top talent from Tesla in the form of, you know, execs of engineering, in vehicle mm-hmm. UX and design. You know, I'm really big on the UX and design. Their their current lead there uh, hailed previously from Tesla and now leads the entire division. And also, this was a recent development, but the development of their charging network. Now, Tesla's charging network is 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 insane. But the individual that was instrumental in rolling out that network is now calling Rivian home, right? He, he kind of leads the uh, development and design of, of Rivian's charging network, which they're going to be dubbing the Invention Network. Um, the one other place that I think you would, you would have some conversations about how does Rivian compare is around autonomy. Now, Rivian's offering is called Drive Plus, not uh, Autopilot. And currently the system isn't as comprehensive as what you would see with Tesla. However, Rivian is uh, targeting level four autonomy. And for our audience, what level four means is essentially that the car will drive itself. It will not need any interference from you. You won't have to grab the wheel at the last minute and be like, oh, hey, you know, wait, uh, actually, I don't want you to drive into a tree, right? Like that 
is not what's going to be taking place on these systems. And this is something that no one has achieved yet, right? Even Tesla with their autopilot offering is still not at this level four designation, which is set by a regulatory body dubbed SAE. Uh, so again, there is there is space in this arena and competition is heating up. And like you were mentioning around the, the Mach-E, which has been uh, provided to us by Ford, investors from JP Morgan, who are incredibly... <laughs> <laughs> who are incredibly rough on Tesla. I just want to put that out there. Um, mm. Believe that the reason why they, they hold this view is because competition will continue to heat up. Individuals will continue to eat away at that market lead that Tesla currently has and that they won't be able to hit the marks, hit the targets and bring in the revenue, the profits, the dollars to justify their current valuation. So this is still very much the early days. There's no denying that Rivian is an underdog, but with $8 billion in funding, a very active investor base, and a valuation, again, that already eclipses conventional automakers, the company is well on its way to emerging as a well-known name in the new world of electric vehicles. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see what Rivian has in the works, brother, but uh, I think they're on to something. Definitely. Definitely, brother. Now, that's our show today. That's our show today. And we have one more segment in the form of the level up. Now, this is what we do every week to make sure that you, our audience, grow with us. We want you to be able to be in these spaces, to see this happening on the ground. And to be able to say like, oh, nah, like I'm, I'm a part of this space too. Um, we definitely make in inroads and that you have the means and capacity to add to the conversation, not only as individuals or rather not only as audience members, but also as professionals. We just want you to win. That's a fact. That's a fact. So this week we have three opportunities for interns and the first one is a marketing intern role at Salesforce. And what you need to have to be able to to win in this role is excellent oral and written skills and entrepreneurial spirit, great planning and organizational skills. And that's really about it. If this sounds like you, then please follow the link that we have in the show notes as interns will have the opportunity to work with Salesforce marketing teams across the spaces of product marketing, brand and creative marketing, marketing operations, and many other subfields. The internship will take place in Austin, Texas this summer. Following up on this opportunity, we have an artificial intelligence research intern role at Facebook. This will be based out of Pittsburgh and is primarily oriented towards computer science students with knowledge of AI, Apply mathematics or data science. So if you have any of these subfields, you you in CompSci, you know about AI, you know about applied mathematics, or you you really good in that data science, this is an opportunity for you. It's also open to masters, PhD, and undergraduate students. So if you check any of those boxes, again, this could be something that you you know that you should be looking into. Uh, finally, we have a TEDx role. So TED is a huge organization, very much at the forefront when it comes to digital content from the major thought leaders of today. And TED is looking for interns who are media savvy, committed to fighting misinformation, that's big, and can articulate 
well-formed opinions. Your primary mission is going to be evaluating, fact-checking, optimizing, and publishing talks put forward by the TEDx community. The internship will be entirely remote, and the requirements for this role are excellent written skills, an interest in a broad range of subjects, detail-oriented and perceptive, and, and this is a good part, it's open to all majors as long as you're a current student and you're going to still be serving at least uh, serving that's rough and that you're going to continue to have one additional semester in the fall Uh, so it starts this march and it ends in september now those are the three opportunities that i have for our audience this week but again i'll be back next week with three new opportunities and these were all posted within the last week I, i really Always try to emphasize that piece. Um, These are new roles. Um, Definitely go out there and see if you can put that app in. And what's even better is see if you can form a professional connection with an individual that works at one of these companies, right? Because once you begin to build that, that network, that connection, when you hear about roles like this, you can tap someone that's in your network and say, hey, would you be willing to share my resume with the recruiting team, right? This brings your name above the pile of names that are in the set of applications that apply for these roles um, and gets you closer to the opportunity of actually interviewing. It'll never assure you that you'll have the job, but it'll give you closer to the opportunity to actually interview. But with that, I'm going to hand it back to George and he's going to close us out. Thank you for those great opportunities, Steph. We we greatly appreciate you as as we work diligently to put you guys on to free game, but opportunity that you should apply for if you're eligible and and it meets your criteria and it's something that you're interested in get out there and and don't be afraid to fail or don't don't be afraid to explore either but with that we greatly appreciate you all for tuning in to episode seven please stay tuned you will not regret it thank you for the consistent listeners thank you for the one-time listeners we appreciate you guys daily and thank you all for tuning in we don't take it for granted stay blessed stay safe stay covid free and we'll see you next week